Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for November 29, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Medicare Advantage plans appear to be bullying providers, denying claims, and fabricating rules for denials. Dr. Geraldine Morrissey has our lead story. We'll also hear from legislative analyst Matthew Albright, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Helen Fink-Samnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, we are monitoring the CDC for updates on the emergence of the new Omicron variant. That is the variant of the coronavirus, and it was first reported in South Africa last week. We're also monitoring the CDC to see if there's been an uptick in reported COVID-19 cases. This following a long Thanksgiving holiday that brought family and friends closer together. In other news, we're monitoring physician reaction to the recent Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina's demand. The giant insurer wants contracted doctors to reduce their rates or be forced to leave the network. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all, and good morning, Kaylee. Now, I'm sure all of you are aware of the No Surprises Act that addresses surprise bills and requires certain providers to give price estimates for non-emergent services. Um, David Glazer is going to be having an upcoming webinar, and I urge you to listen because hearing it from a lawyer is the best way to learn what the law actually says. But now the rule is out. The medical community is really not happy at all. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, physicians hate insurance companies. And as that frustration grows, many physicians have just decided the hassles of contracting with an insurance company and going through all their hoops are just not worth it. So they become out of network and they can charge what they think is a fair rate. This leads to problems, of course. Right? The patient who goes to the ED for chest pain doesn't get to choose which radiologist reads their x-ray or which cardiologist supervises their stress test. And if doctors aren't in their insurance network, the patient may get a surprise bill and may owe much more money. Now, of course, there are patients, or excuse me, people who take advantage of this. In 2014, the New York Times reported on a patient who had a spine surgery in New York City and received an out-of-network bill for $117,000 for the assistant surgeon who they had never even met. Now, this is clearly a problem, but the solution designed by Congress is not going to be well-received. The law sets up an arbitration process where the out-of-network provider and the insurance company both submit their best offer to a mediator, but the mediator has to use the in-network rate for that service in the area as the standard by which to compare the two rates and then pick one or the other. They cannot pick a rate in between. Now, this clearly biases decisions in favor of the insurers. In fact, as Chuck mentioned, one insurer is taking advantage of this. Blue Cross of North Carolina has been threatening doctors in the state. In a letter they sent to many of their in-network physicians, they demanded the physicians agree to a 15% cut in all of their in-network contracted payment rates, or Blue Cross would not sign another contract with them, 
would render them out of network, and they could simply use this mediation process to pay them even less. Boy, are doctors pissed, and rightly so. Now, the other messy part of this rule is the requirement that providers giving that, that providers give uninsured patients a good faith estimate of the cost of their care upon scheduling. Now, that'd be fine if it was just the doctor's charge, but it must include the estimate for any other services that are anticipated during the episode of care. Think about the uninsured patient seeing a, a doctor for rectal bleeding. Now, it's not too hard to provide a price for the office visit, but if that doctor determines the patient needs a colonoscopy, then the doctor has to give the patient a price estimate not only for their charges for doing the scope, but also the anesthesiologist charge, the facility fee, and the pathologist's fee if there happens to be a biopsy taken. Now, how many doctors are going to be willing to see uninsured patients under these onerous rules? Now, there's lots of discussions going on in Washington to fix this, so it'll be interesting to watch. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today, I want to discuss the Medicare appeal process and its faults. Upon undergoing a Medicare audit by Safeguard or whichever auditor contracted by CMS, a provider usually receives a notice of overpayment. The five-level appeal process is flawed as the first two levels rubber stamp the findings. After the second level of appeal, the quick level to the ALJ, recoupment occurs unless the provider sets up an extended repayment schedule or files for an injunction in federal court based on a taking of a property right i.e. the right to reimbursement for services rendered. A new case rendered October 1st, 2021, Integrity Social Work Services, LCSW LLC versus Azar, straddles the fence on this issue. The Eastern District of New York falls within the Second Circuit, which is undecidedly split. The Fifth Circuit is as well split. District courts across the country are split on whether Medicare providers have a protected property interest in the Medicare payment subject to recoupment. Several courts have found that the Medicare Act does create such a property right, including North Carolina, the Fourth Circuit, Texas, Florida, Ohio, and Illinois, to name a few. This particular provider was accused of an alleged overpayment of about $1 million. It argued that because it would not receive a prompt ALJ hearing, that it would be driven out of business. This is a harsh and unacceptable outcome that readily occurs in, I guess, half the state. Providers should be aware of which state in which it resides and whether that state upholds a provider's property interest and reimbursement. The Integrity Social Work Court found that, yes, jurisdiction in federal court was proper because the claims were ancillary to the substantive claims that would be heard by the ALJ. The provider was asking for a temporary stay of recoupment until an ALJ hearing was concluded. As you read the case, you get false hope on the ruling. In the end, Judge Peggy Kuo found, nor is the process to contest an overpayment or a recoupment decision arbitrary, outrageous, or even inadequate. Providers, if you bring a claim to cease the recoupment, bring your Medicare beneficiary's property rights to the freedom of choice of provider and access to care. 
their rights are stronger. I did this in the Bader, in the Bader case in Indiana and won the injunction based on the recipient rights. Some of these cases need to include the recipients in order to have stronger arguments. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up in about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, and Dr. Geraldine Morrissey, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday. It's November the 29th. Today, it's Cyber Monday, and you can get 30% off any purchase on the Rack Monitor IC10 Monitor stores by using the code Cyber. 30. That coupon code CYBER30. Use it at checkout. Uh, this offer is good through December 3rd. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. Outpatient and inpatient coders, billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now, envision one place where you could satisfy all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in this centralized hub would be accessible from any location at any time, with any device, for one affordable price. There is such a place. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Get unlimited access to every MedLearn Media resource contained in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing. ICD-10 Monitor and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. View content whenever it's convenient for you, from any location, on the device of your choosing. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Subscribe today. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, um... Last week, Ron Hirsch teed up an interesting question, which is surprising only in that he usually answers the interesting questions rather than asks them. So let's assume that a hospital has determined its billing for observation services was inconsistent with the manual language. The hospital is going to change its practice going forward, but does the hospital have a duty to go back and refund for its past behavior? This real-world question is among my favorite types of projects. I love helping clients keep the money they've received for services they provide, and I also like helping people stay out of trouble. So does Ron's hospital need to refund? While it's frustrating, I have to give the somewhat stereotypical lawyer answer of, it depends. But let me explain the factors that will control the analysis. Perhaps the most important initial question is whether the hospital's practice was inconsistent with a statute, regulation, or a national coverage determination. If it was, the odds that I will ultimately recommend a refund are much, much higher, but still not certain. There are times when a practice may violate a regulation, but still not result in an overpayment. Perhaps the biggest example is the conditions of participation, which are federal regulations. But despite that, for the most part, violations of the conditions of participation don't create an overpayment and do not require a refund. However, when a fact when an activity violates a statute, regulation, or an NCD, it's important to consider the possible need for a refund. By contrast, if the practice uh, in question only violates, I should, you know, only violates language that are in the manuals, an LCD, or some memo or FAQ, there's almost no chance I'll be recommending a refund. 
About three years ago, Rachel Brand, then the Associate Attorney General, wrote a memo saying the government should only recover an overpayment when a statute, regulation, or NCD prohibits the billing in question. Now, Merrick Garland, as the Attorney General, has indicated the Department of Justice disagrees with that Brand memo, but the Supreme Court decision in the Alina case, together with other case law, confirms that the Brand memo was really more than a government position. It was an accurate characterization of the law. So under the 60-day statute and regulation, you're only required to refund money when you have knowledge of an overpayment. If you can present a colorable argument to defend your bill, no refund is required. This brings me to my final but very important point. The fact that Ron's client is choosing to change its practice going forward does not automatically mean it owes a refund for past billings. Future billing should be based on your best, most defensible position. So like, let's say there are two ways you could bill a claim. One is clearly permissible, and the other might be permissible, but it's ambiguous. I'm generally going to recommend choosing the first clearly permitted option. But when it comes to refunding for past practices, if you use the viable but less persuasive billing option, no refund is required. In essence, I'm recommending that your future billing be based on what is best, but determinations on about refunds be based on what's possible or what I could defend. For an analogy, I would say that when one sees a police officer, one might slow down. Acting cautiously doesn't somehow prove that what you were doing before was illegal. Now, I know that when I say changing your practice doesn't mean your past practice was wrong, some people are going to think that I've lost my mind. But if I had more time, I think I could make the argument pretty compellingly. In fact, I'd like to think that in the words of Sugar's lead singer, Bob Mould, if I can't change your mind, then no one will. But however you get there, I hope you realize that changing your behavior doesn't mean that the old behavior was necessarily wrong. Chuck, until next week, I'll be waiting here for you. Thanks, David, and I'll be waiting for you as well. That was healthcare attorney David Glaser. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday legislative update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Chuck. Today I'm going to give updates on the status of the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. Listeners will remember that there are three now. The first is the OSHA mandate that applies to commercial businesses. The second is the CMS mandate that applies to healthcare workers at facilities that participate in Medicare or Medicaid. And the third is what we'll call the federal employee and federal contractor mandate. Now, all three of these mandates theoretically have an effective date of January 1st, 2021. Note that I said theoretically, that January 4th date may shift depending on how these mandates fare in court. The first mandate, the OSHA mandate, applying to all commercial businesses in the country with 100 or more employees, requires employees to either vaccinate or get tested on a weekly basis. The OSHA mandate was immediately met with lawsuits in every regional federal appeals court with the exception of one. 
And in fact, an appeals court has subsequently put a freeze on that OSHA mandate, blocking the rule from going forward. In response, OSHA announced last week that it was postponing enforcement and implementation of the rule pending court decisions. The second vaccine mandate is the CMS mandate that requires healthcare workers at facilities that participate in Medicare or Medicaid to be vaccinated. Facilities in this case include hospitals, of course, but also ambulatory surgical centers, community mental health centers, home health agencies, hospices, rural health clinics, and long-term care facilities, among others. The CMS mandate has been challenged in court as well by 24 states in total, including a separate lawsuit by the state of Florida. Earlier in the month, in fact, Florida passed legislation that prohibits private companies from mandating vaccines, which is, of course, in direct conflict with all three of the administration's vaccine mandates. In contrast to how the OSHA mandate was stopped by the courts, last week a federal judge denied Florida's request to block the CMS mandate. Similar to the reasons given in related lawsuits, Florida argued that healthcare facilities would lose a significant number of employees who would quit rather than get vaccinated. But the judge in this case said that this conclusion is speculation, that there was no supporting evidence that demonstrated employees would leave. The court, at least in this instance, is letting the CMS mandate proceed. The third vaccine mandate is the federal employee and contractor mandate. Again, 20 states have filed suit against this mandate, but the mandate appears to be on track for January 1st, January 4th, I'm sorry. So if you are keeping track, right, the OSHA mandate requiring vaccines or testing for private companies has been at least temporarily stopped from going forward. The CMS mandate, however, is going forward for the time being. That CMS mandate, again, requires vaccines for employees for most of the hospitals in this country with no allowance for testing. Finally, the federal employee mandate appears to be going forward as well, applying to federal employees, federal contractors, and federal subcontractors. So, Chuck, if you're a student of political science, the vaccine mandate issue is a a fascinating interplay of state and federal rights and the balance of power between the executive and the judicial. However, if you're the rest of us, it's getting very difficult to understand just what we're required to do from January 4th. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. You're very correct in that analysis. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is a chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. And good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck, and happy Monitor Monday, all. $140 billion. That's the amount associated with past due medical bills reported for 2020. While the reality of medical debt is nothing new to the industry, its distribution further emphasizes society's racial, ethnic, and cultural disparities. 28% of black versus 70% of white households. 52% of the LGBTQIA community have trouble paying bills. 67% of this community use their entire savings for health care expenses. 25% of individuals with medical debt in collection are people of color. And 33% of persons have delayed care due to the cost. Medical debt remains most prevalent in the South, particularly across the 12 states that have not adopted Medicaid expansion. You know them by now. Alabama. Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. 
One can't help note that new medical debt dropped by 44% in the other 39 expansion states. Yet the way organizations manage past due medical and balance billing varies. Implicit bias plagues how readily payment options or programs are provided to patients, whether payment plans or the opportunity even for charity application. Polls reveal interesting disparities in where hospitals provided free or low-cost care for the lowest-income patients. Under 50% of black respondents verbalized awareness of these programs versus 79% of white respondents. The outcomes yield harsh implications for patients, especially when a balance is put in the hands of a collections agent. A series of actions can occur. Surprise payment deductions to garnishing weight of wages, charging high interest of over 10% on balances that impede paying off the balance to begin with. Some states put liens on patients' homes or sue patients, a popular course of action in communities of color. In Maryland, state hospitals were three times more likely to actually sue patients in lower-income areas. Now, despite federal and state laws passed to protect consumers from surprise medical bills and balanced billing, collections agents continue going after these sums. California, Colorado, Maryland, and New Mexico have implemented strict laws to protect patients and their families. Maryland's recent legislation will keep hospitals from placing liens on patients' homes or garnishing wages for persons who qualify for charity care. Colorado legislation standardizes how health care providers screen patients for financial assistance and adds restrictions on collections practices. In New Mexico, persons at under 200% of the poverty level are protected from collections agencies, and California will raise the income ceiling for charity care eligibility. Roughly 57% of hospitals are nonprofits, meaning if payments if patients make under a certain amount of money, the facility should legally forgive their, their medical bills. This amount is usually attributed to bad debt, though this percentage has risen dramatically in recent years. Most hospitals claim a bad debt percentage of 1% to 5%, though as high as 21% report between 5 to 10% totally, $10 million or more. Clearly, healthcare is a business and bills should be paid. The revenue capture is a delicate balancing act. It should heed the laws protecting the neediest populations. This week's Monitor Monday listener survey asks, what do you estimate your organization's annual bad debt percentage to be? A, 1 to 5%, B, 5 to 10%, C, over 10%, D, do not know, E, does not apply. Well, we'll be back with the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan. That was consultant and author, Alan McSandrick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. 
you're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the RAC Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now is Ellen Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. Well, what do you estimate your organization's annual bad debt percentage to be? So many topics seem to appeal to our audiences, and this one did as well. About 6% said 1% to 5%, but it got concerning where the numbers rose. 5 to 10% got close to 20% of listeners, and about 17% said over 10%. The folks that do not know, we're close to 50% of our listeners, and I bet they're all running to know now. There are widespread reports of Medicare Advantage plans essentially bullying providers. Here now with a RAC Monitor exclusive story on this terrible situation is Dr. Gerilyn Morrissey. Good morning, Dr. Morrissey, and welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Chuck, and hello, everyone. Over the past year, hospitals have been seeing sicker patients who have required additional services and longer lengths of stay than prior to the pandemic. With higher expenses and fewer outpatient visits, as well as a shortage of nurses and other workers, not to mention supply chain issues, hospitals across the country are expected to lose an estimated $54 billion in net income throughout 2021. Meanwhile, the top six insurers have made $21.8 billion in profit in the first half of 2021 alone. United Health Group was again the most profitable insurer with $4.3 billion in profit in the second quarter. Across the board, earnings growth for health insurers has outpaced the market. In fact, over the last 10 years, insurers' earnings increased by 10% annually climbing to $65 billion in 2020. To put that into perspective, the average S&P 500 annual growth rate was just 3.9% over the same time period. Rising payer profit and inversely declining hospital revenue demand that hospitals pursue all avenues to achieve fair compensation for the care they provide. Since the implementation of the CMS to midnight rule in fiscal year 2014, Physician advisors across the country have debated its role and applicability to the Medicare Advantage beneficiaries. The question often posed is, do Medicare Advantage plans have to follow the CMS to midnight rule? Quite simply, the answer to that question is no. There's no rule that explicitly states that insurers have to follow the to midnight rule. But hold on, because more importantly, this is the wrong question and perpetuates that ever-growing lack of reimbursement. The more effective and relevant question is why does CMS prohibit insurers from being more restrictive or provide less benefits than traditional Medicare? In fact, Title 42 of the Code of Federal Regulations, Part 422 at Section 101, directs Medicare Advantage plans that although they do not need to implement Medicare-specific policies, such as the two midnight rule, they cannot be more restrictive than original Medicare fee-for-service. Medicare Advantage plans 
cannot have more restrictive guidelines than Medicare. They must, at the very least, adhere to the simplistic confines of traditional Medicare, which include the traditional Medicare definition of observation and the definition of inpatient, which just so happened to align with a standard two midnight rule approach. To resist Medicare Advantage bullies, hospitals should follow CMS requirements to hold them to a standard that is not less than Medicare. Medicare Advantage beneficiaries should have the same, if not better, benefits than traditional Medicare. CMS clearly states in the Social Security Act, the Code of Federal Regulations, and in reports issued by the OAG as recent as September 2018, to name just a few, that a Medicare Advantage plan cannot take advantage of, cannot lessen, cannot manipulate a Medicare beneficiary's benefits. Hospitals need to demand the profit-bloated insurer follow the regulations for reimbursement. The insurer is not treating the patient. The insurer is not incurring the cost. They are just taking the money while the hospital does the work. The current circumstances require more than ever before that we reframe the question and that hospitals hold payers accountable to the regulations and ultimately the contract they signed with CMS to provide at a minimum a, rare re, re, a fair reimbursement for services delivered. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Morrissey. That was the Senior Vice President of Clinical and Regulatory Affairs for Versalis Health, Dr. Geraldine Morrissey. I'm sure to read her timely report on Thursday's Rack Monitor, and that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Pink Sandwich, David Glazier, Dr. Ronald Hurst, and Dr. Geraldine Morrissey, who reported early story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>